You know, if you were a news reporter and you showed up to this one percenter, a guy who's used to an elite, affluent lifestyle named the Apostle Paul, and now he finds himself in prison and he's singing together, you might ask some questions like, what's your secret? And Paul shares his secret in the letter to the Philippines, uh, Philippines, <laughs> Philippians, Philippines, tomato, tomato. As he shares his secrets, he actually uses a principle specific to Philippi. You see, those living in Philippi, many of them used to be uh, in Italy, living in Rome. When Octavian came to power and was sort of put in command, he moved many of them who lived in the mothership, the mother country of Rome in Italy, and moved them to Macedonia and Philippi. And yet, because they were transplanted, they were given certain benefits of living there. Though they resided in Philippi, they were still citizens of Rome. And they knew about this dual citizenship, what it meant to be a resident in one location while being a citizen of another. Gives all kind of benefits of being a Roman citizen, benefits related to taxation that were given by the Roman Empire. And Paul takes this principle and applies it to Christ followers who are going through difficulty and challenges like he was. He says, don't forget that though we are residents of earth, we are citizens of heaven. And in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he'll play out this idea of our citizenship in heaven. He'll say in chapter 1, to conduct yourselves, literally live as citizens here on earth of heaven. And that becomes his secret. And he shares that secret in how it applies to experiencing happiness and joy in the midst of difficulty as we dive into our passage today. He's going to share two things. We'll show how it comes directly out of the text. But he says, the secret to my joy was I learned how to identify what I magnify. And then he says, I learned how to identify what I glorify. And these two secrets were how I was able to sustain joy while in prison with the threat of being beheaded and killed. In fact, there was a study recently done. It was the New York Times that quoted the University of Minnesota. So the formula for happiness is this. That this study it said 48% of our disposition toward joy comes from our inherited genes. Which makes sense. Many of us, it's easy. We had parents who were very happy. Other of us have parents who struggle with depression or melancholy, and we know it's harder for us to get our happiness up, right? Well, secondly, 40% of our disposition toward joy comes from isolated events in our life. Things that happen to us, how we react to those, which leaves 12% within our control. But what was pretty amazing about the study is the four factors relate to our control. Number one was faith, number two was family, three was community, and four was our work life. And Paul uses these four factors, his faith, his family, his community as he's building these faith communities called churches, and his work as a tent maker to bring glory to God. All of these things become the secret formula to him being able to bring the message and mindset and focus of God into his circumstances. So let's look at how he did it. If you jump into Philippians chapter 1 with me, it begins in verse 19. We pick up where we were last week. Paul says, For I know... What does he know? I know this will turn out for my deliverance. You remember last week, the phrase turned out was used several times. And we discovered that the joy in what turns out is determined by what you want turned out. And what Paul wanted turned out more than anything was that God would be glorified. So how about us? For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now he's writing from prison and he says, I know for sure I'm going to be delivered. But does he know for sure that an angel is going to come like it did to Peter and pull him out? No, he doesn't. 
but yet he has certainty that it will turn out for his deliverance. So what is it he's certain about? What kind of deliverance is he certain about? Well, he says, through your prayers, it strengthened me. Through the supply of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I'll be ashamed. But, and here it comes, with all boldness, as always, and even right now, I want Christ to be magnified. So he says, I have identified what I want magnified more than anything. Whatever happens in my life, what I want more than anything is Christ to be magnified. So that's how he's going to be delivered. Because his deliverance is determined by whether or not Christ will be magnified. Now notice, he says now, do I know for sure I'm getting out of here? Well, sort of, one way or another. I may be getting out by my life or by my death. So he doesn't have a promise for sure that he's going to get out in this life. He doesn't know for sure that he's going to escape prison. He doesn't know for sure that he's not going to face certain death in Rome. But he says, there's something more important to me than my life. There's something more important to me than my death. I have identified, for I know, what I want magnified. And I want Christ magnified. If I die, I want to die giving declaration to who he is. And if I live, I want to live a life, not just sitting on the couch. I want to live a life using the opportunities and the skills and the talents God's given me to teach and communicate and woo and persuade people into relationship with him. And this is why he can find joy, whether he lives or whether he dies, because he wants Christ glorified. Now, know some of the phrases he uses. He has earnest expectation. He expects God to be magnified. He has a hope, and this isn't like I hope the Bengals do better next year kind of hope. Biblical hope is confidence, assurance. I hope, I know for sure that in nothing I'm going to be ashamed because Christ is going to be magnified. I'm going to be bold about it. It's going to happen right now, whether life or by death. See, for me, many times I don't experience joy because my magnifying glass of my life is on something besides Christ. Now, Christ is in there. He's sort of nice. It's nice to have Christ in my life. He's one of the parts of my life. But I've got something else I've magnified that's more important to me. Yeah, yeah, I hope Christ is magnified as as long as I make money. Uh, Well, I hope Christ is magnified as long as I have a comfortable life. Hey, hey, it would be great if Christ would be magnified as long as my marriage is going well. But see, what's happening is we are magnifying something in our life more than Christ. And it's almost always good things. In fact, I I took a list as I was looking at my own life. There's nothing wrong with making money. But if you magnify money more than Christ, it can become an idol. What about success? For some of us, we're single and getting married is something we've magnified. And we're angry at God. And God says, well, what if I want you to magnify me while you're in singleness right now? Oh, Oh, man, come on, right? I've walked with many couples struggling with infertility. There's nothing wrong with having a child. There's nothing wrong with wanting a child. There's nothing wrong with struggling and wrestling with God about that. But make sure you move the magnifying glass and say, but God, if you want to magnify yourself as my husband and I, my wife and I walk through this journey of infertility, we want you magnified even more than we want to have a child. Relational harmony, comfort, A good marriage, nothing wrong with having a good marriage, but maybe what what Christ is saying to you is that, will you be willing to glorify me and magnify me in the midst of a difficult season in your marriage? A great track record, a reputation, a freer... I messed this up last night too. A fear-free life, 
good health, nothing wrong with working, going to doctors and trying to find out what's wrong. But maybe God wants to use you in the midst of that bad report, those bad test results, to show those who are watching you what it looks like for Christ to be manifest in the midst of difficulty. Fame, awards, recognition, center of attention, there's nothing wrong. These are all good things. But do you want them more than you want Christ magnified? And I love the fact that Paul thought through this. He says, I know, I've thought about it. In fact, the next part of the verse, you're going to see him sort of work out the details. He's really thought it through. It's almost like we're looking into his journal entry of how he's thought about how this works. James the Great, if you've ever read Fox's book of Martyrs, talks about many who've died for their faith. And they've said, I'm willing to have Christ magnified in my life or in my death. James the Great was uh, the son of Zebedee. And about 44 A.D., ten years after the stoning of Stephen and Acts, give you sort of a mental picture, Herod Agrippa has come to power. Now, if you remember Herod Agrippa, in the book of Acts, Paul is so impacted with his desire to influence the influencer. He will go to the big cities, he'll go after the influencers, because he knows that if he can convince Felix or Festus or Caesar or Agrippa to come to be a follower of Christ, it will not only impact them, but they have such influence over the entire region that it will be freedom and a lack of tyranny to so many others through history. So Paul goes after trying to persuade, convert, woo the influencers. So he went after Herod Agrippa, but Herod Agrippa was not converted. In fact, he went the other way. So around 44 AD, he decided to put immerse intense persecution against the Christians. So much so that they caught James the Great, they capture him, they bring him on trial, and while he's on trial, they pay off a guy to testify against him, to accuse him. We'll call him Tim. So Tim the accuser shows up, and Tim starts making all kinds of false accusations against James. He said this, and it's not true. He said this against Rome. He made these false statements. And James the Great stands up and gives the most clear articulation of the gospel refutes these claims with facts. And the audience is stunned at his conviction, at his strength, at the truth of what he says. In fact, the accuser, Tim, gets increasingly convicted that he is accusing a great man of God. And as they come close to laying down the, uh, the verdict, the verdict is that he is going to be killed. In fact, he's going to be beheaded. And the accuser having heard James the Great speak, stands up and says, I've been lying, I've been paid off to lie, this is a great man of God, and he should not die alone. And he goes from accuser to stepping up and taking the sentence with James. And that day the two of them are beheaded. And while they are beheaded for Christ, they are still talking about how Christ offers forgiveness to even his enemies and those who are doing such unjust things against him. Now, what, what can do that in your heart? It doesn't, religion doesn't do that. Following rules doesn't do that. Only the powerful message of the gospel, when it grasps your heart, can make that kind of transformation. When you say, I want Christ magnified more than I want my own head. I want Christ magnified more than I want the 30 pieces of silver I got to accuse. And that's what this text is calling us to look at. And so Paul begins to play that out in his, in his own life. So as if we're looking at his journal, he's now going to identify not just what he magnifies, but what he glorifies. He says, for me to live is Christ. Now notice he's going to play out these two scenarios. Here's what it looks like for Christ to be magnified in my life. 
Here's what it looks like for Christ to be magnified in my death. To live is Christ. But to die is gain, to be with Christ. If I live on in the flesh, it means fruit from my labor. I'm not just going to sit around. God can use me in this life right now, even while in prison, chained up to people, writing letters to folks, encouraging people. I can help the unconvinced become convinced about Christ. I can become help those who are convinced about Christ be more and more convinced about His Word. I want fruit from my labor. Yet... Yet, man, what shall I choose? I mean, he, he is genuinely perplexed. I'm not sure I'd be genuinely perplexed. Let's see, I could die or I could live. But he has really thought about this. Yeah, but to die is to be in the presence of God. No more pain, no more prison, no more heartache, no more beatings, no more shipwrecks. But to be on earth in the flesh is to allow God to use me to demonstrate his power and his strength and his peace in the midst of that. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Man, I've got a desire to depart, no doubt. And I want to be with Christ more than anything. That's far better. And look at this word, nevertheless. Now he goes back to the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. But to remain in the flesh, to stay here on earth, it's more needful for you. I get to impact more people. I'm very confident of this. I know that I shall remain. And I will continue with you. With you all, for your progress. I want to see you progress more and more to being convinced that God is everything He says He is. I want you to more and more experience the joy of the faith, the kind of joy that you can have in the midst of a prison cellar. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ. I'm even hoping that He does get me out of here so that I can come and see you again because of your prayers and your financial blessings and the way in which you've told me I've been encouragement to you and you to me. So what he's doing is you see him weighting his priorities. I'm sure, I want to live. Oh, but I really want Christ magnified. Oh, I'd like to die. That'd be nice. Man, that'd be really great to be in the presence of God. But, but I wouldn't be able to impact as many people before I go. He's giving weight to things. Like that's what the word glory means. It means to give weight. Many of us haven't taken the time to really play out and journal through giving weight to how Christ might be glorified or weighted in our life. In fact, many you hear, you know, as Christians, many times we'll throw words like that. Hey, oh, glory to God. Glory to God. And every once in a while you'll pause and say, well, what, is, what does the glory of God mean? I don't know, it's just something we say, right? It's a glory. So I want to actually dig into what the word glory means. So we're going to take a few moments to start digging into this. Glory means to give weight to. God's end game is always his glory. Just through the Bible, God created the world for his glory, to show the weight of everything he is. In fact, every time God shows up on the earth, the earth has an earthquake because it can't sustain the weight of who he is. God will heal the broken world with his glory. He made us for his glory. He saves us to praise his glory. He does everything for his glory. When he judges, he does it for his glory. When he shows mercy, oh, you give weight to what a wonderful, kind God he is. And therefore, he wants our end game to always be his glory. Well, again, Chad, you told me that's all about his glory, but you didn't tell me what it means yet. All right, here it comes. So we're going to go slow on these three things. So my favorite quotes on this. God is infinitely the greatest and the best of beings. All things else, even good things, all things else, with regard to worthiness, importance, and excellence, are perfectly as nothing 
in comparison to him. The ultimate goal of God's works is the glory of God. Now, do you see how if that was true? I mean, it's true intellectually, but when it becomes true in your heart, you begin to magnify God and say, that's what I want more than anything. To have my heart be more and more convinced that knowing him, wanting him, seeing him is worth everything in my life and everything else pales in comparison. The biblical word glory is kavad. From the Hebrew, it means to be heavy, to be weighty, to be significant. The glory of the Lord indicates the brilliance that is connected with all God's virtues and His self-revelation in nature and grace. As an object of loving adoration, it's called His beauty. As an object of reverent submission, it's called His majesty. As an object of our joyous gratitude, it's called His worthiness. And you see it specifically in the Trinity. Because many people will, will say, well, I believe that you know, Jesus is one of many ways, or you know, Allah, God, they're all different names for the same thing. No, no, they're not. In fact, in the Trinity, we see the weight and glory of a unique God, the, the true God who made the heavens and earth. And I love this quote. It's a little long, but stay with me. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit glorify each other. Self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, they commune with, they defer to one another. Each harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. So creation is neither a necessity nor an accident. Instead, given God's interior life that overflows with regards to others, we might say that creation is an act that was fitting of God. In creation, God graciously made room in the universe for other kinds of beings. God's splendor, His glory becomes clearer whenever the Son of God powerfully spends Himself in order to cause others to flourish. Jesus Christ's pattern of life in the world reproduces the very inner life of God. So this is what this means. That the role of the church is not primarily about evangelism and discipleship, though that's what we do. The reason we want people to be evangelized is because when you accept Christ as your forgiver and leader, it's at that moment you begin to give God glory. Oh my goodness, what a God. A God who rescued me, a God who forgave me, a God who pursued me. Evangelism leads to glory, but so does discipleship. As you become more and more convinced that this is His Word, that He is in control so you don't need to worry so much, that you can allow Him to be judged and you can let go of your bitterness. It's when you do that, when your convincing goes up, that you give Him glory as judge. Give Him glory as the merciful one, as the forgiving one. And so that is why the end game of God in your life, the end game of God in, in history is always his glory. Which is why Paul is so perplexed. He's sitting there going, okay, if I live, a lot more people can come to know him and I'll have the fruit of, of, of my labors of God working through me and more people will give him glory. But if I die, I will be in glory. So with those thoughts in mind, I want to take a moment. It's going to be a longer moment than normal because I want to sort of explain what Horizon's all about. How evangelism and discipleship lead to God's glory. So I want to step up on the stage here to show you a little bit. Oh, let me go to the next slide. One of the things we're trying to do as a church, and, and our church is ultimately not about a building, it's not about a band, it's certainly not about Doug or I, it's not about any of the stuff. It is about working with God to help the unconvinced become increasingly convinced. 
And God is doing that already. God's at work all around us. He reveals himself through creation, through his character, through our conscience, our, our secrets, our, our, our mind, our conscience bearing witness against us. He, he works through circumstances. And he's trying to, to woo us to become a follower of Christ. But that's not the end game. Then that we would become close to Christ, increasingly convinced that he is who he says he was, and then we would live a life that is Christ-centered. So as God is working, one of our strategies as we look what Jesus did is to partner with what God is doing in the lives of our friends. So we call this our five-step strategy. We build authentic friendships with the unconvinced. Now I say authentic because if they don't want to pursue God, we're still friends with them, right? An inauthentic friendship says, no, I really want to notch in my belt. And then people feel used and it's not authentic. A real authentic friendship says, I want to build friendships with those who are unconvinced. And I want to hear their story and I want to share my story. And that's step two. I build an authentic friendship. I share my faith story. I learn how to share my testimony. I learn how to share the gospel in a way that's not weird, in a way that's not overly religious, a way that's not freaky. It's normal and natural. And as our unconvinced friends hear that, they're like, wow, tell me more about that. And then we invite them to an exploring environment where they explore what they're unconvinced about. You really think the Bible's true? You really think Jesus is the only way? Now, that, un- that exploring environment might be at Starbucks. That might be at our home. Or at church, what we do is we have an exploring service at our 10 and 1110 that is aimed at the unconvinced. We don't do praise and worship at that service. Why? It's not aimed at the convinced. It's aimed at the unconvinced to do what? Explore their questions so that God can work in their life and they can become a follower of Christ. And then we're not done. We then invite them to a connecting environment to serve or to connect with other people in Bible study and grow deeper in this. And then our last step is a coaching environment or an equipping environment. And so this service and our Saturday service are our equipping environments where we equip you on what the Bible says, how to study it, how to work it into your life. Now, this is, I usually don't have time to go over, so I want to just take a few minutes to go over this. This is a way that you can sort of track with what God is doing in your friend's life. And it's something you can use to track in what God's doing in your life. So you're building a relationship with somebody who's unconvinced. They have either no conscious awareness of God, or maybe they have an awareness of God, but not the gospel. They still think that, that being a Christian means going to church, it means religious hoops, it means being a good person, right? And they think that basically all Christians are hypocrites. But you build an authentic friendship with them. And usually people don't go from here to here. They usually go to here. They now have a positive attitude toward a messenger of the gospel. I still don't believe the gospel. I still don't believe Jesus. I still don't believe the Bible. I still think most Christians are hypocrites. But I like you. You don't seem all bad. And see what's happened? And now God is beginning to work through your relationship that now they're a little more open. And then, as it becomes natural and as it becomes authentic, you share your faith story, how God's working in the midst of your parenting challenges or your marriage challenges. You begin to share how God's at work when you got a report that says that you have cancer and don't know what it means. And it's in the midst of sharing your story that someone has an initial awareness of the gospel. It's not about do, 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 do. It's about what he's done. God doesn't take saints. He makes saints. You mean it's not about going to church? It's about falling in love with God. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And now, in the context of your conversation, they're starting to have an awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel. And then they begin to grasp the implications of the gospel, how it's working out in your life. 
pretty soon they have a positive attitude toward the benefits of the gospel. They still don't believe it, but they say, as I you know, interviewed a couple of agnostics on a stage here the last couple of years, I remember Steve Kissing said, well, I don't believe it at all, but I like the idea of seeing my grandmother again in heaven. Well, I don't believe it at all yet, but, but I like the idea that God is with me and living in me. And this is what happens. God's beginning to show them, you see how you'd want it to be true. And pretty soon they have a positive attitude toward the message of the gospel. It's bad news I fall short, but I only heard that part before. But it's also good news because he will exalt me higher than my good works ever could. And then we come to personal problem recognition. That's an American English way of saying repentance. I've got a problem. I need forgiveness. I'm headed toward an eternity without Him. My good works are never going to make up for my bad works. I need to trust Christ as my forgiver and leader. Which again is an English way of saying Lord and Savior. But Lord and Savior has got a little religiosity to it. So we say forgiver, that's Savior. And leader, that's Lord. And now as a Christ follower... Well, what does this mean? God's living in me. I'm experiencing joy. I know for sure that I'm going to heaven. But what else? And we begin to work with folks with post-decision follow-up, teaching them how to grow in this connection to the body of Christ through serving or through uh, two or three people, two to 12 people investing in your life. And then as you begin to get into the word, as you begin to get around other believers, you see the transformed life come out of you, the fruit of his Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace. It's all coming out of you. But it's not you. It's him in you. And then you want to know more about this word. Tell me more about this biblical competence. I want to worship not just by singing songs. I want to worship through my life. And then I learned that my whole life is a stewardship. My time, my treasure, my talents. How do I live my whole life in this way? And then you finally get to the top and you say, I want to be part of multiplication. I'm now equipped to repeat the process. I'm not going to go to church things all the time. I'm not going to go to a church softball league. I want to go join my unconvinced friends. And I want to do unto others what someone did unto me. I want to see where God is working in my friends' lives. I want them to become increasingly convinced of what really matters. And let me tell you what I love about working at Horizon. And there's, I've been here 10 years this summer. Every week, every week, we get emails, we get phone calls, we have a staff gathering. We must have five to ten unconvinced every week talking about taking the next step in their journey. I sat down with a guy recently at a restaurant for breakfast, and he said, Chad, I've been at church for 20 years. Somebody invited me to Horizon, I started coming. I said, well, how is it? He goes, I come on Sundays. He said, I thought God was angry at me because I hadn't been a good person. And because I hadn't been a good person, I thought he, that every bad thing that happened, he must be punishing me. I'm beginning to understand that the punishment that happened occurred on Jesus, and I can accept the punishment he took on my behalf, and I can accept Christ as my forgiver. That's what I'm learning. I said, whoa, you're getting the good stuff then. He, I said, well, which service did you come to? He says, all three on Sunday. I said, you know, the second and the third on Sunday are the same. He goes, yeah, but I've been out for 20 years. I need it. I said, you've been at church for 20 years and now you're coming to three services? He goes, yes. And I've never been to a place like this where I'm experiencing the grace of God and the power of God in my life. I can feel it. Every single week. No, this is no pastor exaggeration. Every single week we get story after story. In fact, we did a reveal study last year that showed that over 50% of our second, third service, or I guess now our third and fourth service, the next two, 50% would say I'm either unconvinced or barely on the line trying to see if I really know what this even means. Just to give you an idea, 50%, that's 
almost seven to eight times the average of churches that are trying to do this. And it's not because we're so slick. It's because we are part of a movement of God's spirit like I've never seen before. We are seeing convinced people become more convinced. We're seeing unconvinced people becoming convinced. And it's just what Paul said. We want to see the labor of fruit coming out because of what God's done. And it's not just because we're going to help those people. It's because we're helping our see God do this in our life. I mean, how do we exchange what we're magnifying and what we're glorifying? I'm not even asking you to make your career or your success or your wanting of a child or you want to get married. I'm not asking you to diminish those. I'm just saying you need to see something far greater. That you begin to magnify Christ glorified more than anything. That you begin to want him glorified in your life more than even life itself. So this week, do what Paul did. Pull out a pen and a piece of paper and write down, what is it right now I need to identify? That I am wanting to be magnified more than Christ. What do I need to glorify or give weight to about God that I'm currently not giving weight to? And then what would it look like? Really write it out. What would it look like when I face my temptations, when I face my worries? What would it look like if I began to play this out in my mind, renew my mind and take thoughts captive? Really play it out and say, God, this is the path I want to take. In my neighborhood, in my thought life, in my heart, in my will, to want you magnified. And if you'll do that, this week, if you will just exchange one thing that you know is substituting or become an idol rather than God, you will begin to experience a joy that transcends circumstances. It will begin to well up as the fruit of His Spirit begins to come more and more magnified in your life, as your vision of who Jesus is gets greater and greater. It can be like a story I heard. It goes back to 1544, a guy named George Wishart. He had just discovered the main message of the Bible, the gospel. He began to talk about the fact that God doesn't take saints. He makes saints and the grace and the freedom that comes from God's word. He was going through Danoon, Scotland and Dundee and traveling all around. And as he came to a couple areas, he came to this one area and he, 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 he preached and he was driven out by the religious people of the day. The cardinal had just said, get that guy out of here. That's a bad message. He's speaking against indulgences. He's speaking against the things that we're teaching. Well, the plague broke out 24 hours after he left and thousands were dying. His friend said, George, don't go back there. The plague's killing everybody. He says, I've got to go back there. I want to make sure these people facing death know what really matters and who can defeat death. So he heads back. And they had separated the sick and the, and the healthy. And they had a wall in between. So he decides to walk up on the wall and he preaches to both the sick and dying and to the living about the power of the word of God. That to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And the power experience on both sides of the walls he spoke were that God matters. And if you die, die magnifying God, caring for one another, proclaiming that there is one who's defeated death. And to you who are alive, use the opportunity you have to help those, to minister to those, to risk your very life, to show the love and compassion of Christ all around you. And his revival breaks out and he heads down to London. Meanwhile, the cardinal hires a priest to try and stab him along the way. And on his way, the, the priest comes up with a dagger and tries to stab him. And George sees the dagger and wrestles it out of his hand. A crowd who loved George comes around and says, let's kill that guy who tried to kill you. And George says, no, let's forgive our enemies. And all of a sudden, the crowd is like, oh, that's what you've been talking about, isn't it? And they got to see in the midst of retaliation, the power of the gospel, forgiving your enemies. 
And yet they captured him later. The cardinal captured him and brought him before trial. And here at trial, he was accused of 18 different accounts of heresy, to which he gave the most articulate defense of the gospel and the Bible. And the audience was stunned. And the cardinal said, we're still going to kill him. And they packed him up with with gunpowder. And they put him on a stake. And they chained him around. And as they chained him, one of the friars put a black hood over him, and his job was to light it on fire, and he came close. And having heard George give this defense of the, the power of God, and while he is being chained up, George is still speaking. He's still preaching. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They believe the lie. Oh, you too can have the confidence I have in facing death, he says, while he's being burned at the stake. He's still preaching. Oh, that Christ would be glorified right now in the midst. The friar who's about to light leaned in and said, Oh, sir, sir, please forgive me. I know you're an innocent man. I know you're an innocent man. To which, while chained to the stake, he leans over, George does, and kisses the friar on the cheek. says, I forgive you. Go about the duties of your office. And sure enough, he died being burned at the stake, wanting his life to glorify God and magnify Christ more than life itself. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Oh, that God would put just a piece of that in my heart as well. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the life of Christ and how that life manifests itself through the personality and the journey of Paul. God, we pray that you make our lives, that you make our church a place that is so attractive, not because of our building or not because of our music or not because of our program, but because you are here in our midst and you are wooing people to yourself. And Father, help us to take that message and not keep it to ourselves, but just in the same way that George told those to help those who are sick and those who are hungry and those who are dying, that we can be Christ to them through your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you want to do that, if you want to have an opportunity to be Christ to others, we are starting our Feed My Starving Children drive. I want to show you a quick 45-second uh, video because I want you to sign up um, this week, really, to start being part of what God's doing. Let's watch. Feed My Starving Children is a Christian organization. We produce a nutritious food that we send to starving children in 67 countries around the world. Our food was scientifically designed to restore a child from malnutrition to health. We got rice, and there's soy, and then there's some vegetables, and then there's chicken flavor. At a mobile pack event, you bring your hands, your heart, and your resources to help feed starving kids around the world. I think this is a great chance to volunteer for anybody because it's only giving up two hours of your time. And the difference you can make is sometimes feeding 50 or 100 kids for an entire year. When my husband and I were done last year, it was like, we want to keep going. We want to package more meals. You get such an adrenaline built up. You can be a part of moving these children from a place of hunger to a place of hope. Have to make note of those dates, February 13th to 15th, locations changed this year to Indian Hill High School. And you can go to our website, horizoncc.com, and sign up for a two-hour block. And again, when the poor are fed, 
and learn about Jesus. You know what happens? They give glory to God. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week. If you came prepared to give, there's offering boxes. If you're new to Horizon, third door on your left is the hearth room. People would love to visit and greet you. Thanks again.